Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. This podcast engages authors from recent AJHP publications who will give us an inside look at their research and explore the impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes. Today, we'll be discussing the article, Evaluation of Insulin Requirements with Initiation of Glucagon-Like Peptide 1 Agonist and Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter 2 Inhibitors, a Retrospective Cohort Trial, which was recently published on hhp.org. Our guests are Dr. Nada Farhad, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist, Ambulatory Care, Henry Ford Medical Center, and Dr. Jamie George, Ambulatory Oncology Clinical Pharmacist, Henry Ford Medical Center. Thank you both for joining me today. Jamie, let's start with a high-level overview of the pharmacology and the uses of the GLP-1 agonists and the SGLT2 inhibitors. I think it would be helpful for the listeners as we start to talk about your study, if they could just put everything into perspective with, a, as I said, a an understanding of the pharmacology of these drugs? Sure. So as we know, GLP-1 agonists, also known as glucagon-like peptide 1, and SGLT2 inhibitors, also known as sodium glucose co-transported 2 inhibitors, they're both classes that we've been using a lot more lately because of their benefits and the outcomes that they have in diabetes management and glycemic control. They have different and unique mechanisms for each class. So um, GLP-1 agonists, their mechanism includes it. They stimulate insulin release, decrease resistance of insulin. They reduce hepatic glucose production. They slow down how quickly like the gastric emptying occurs. And also they help with suppressing appetite. So in those ways, those allow for the glycemic control that we see. On the other hand, SGLT2 inhibitors, they basically decrease the glucose reabsorption by the kidneys. And by doing this, this helps to increase how much glucose is excreted by the kidneys. And not only have we seen a lot of glycemic benefit from these agents, but also some of these agents have shown to have cardiorenal benefits and reduce those negative cardiorenal outcomes that we can see. And it's especially important for people who have diabetes and some of the complications that we can see with cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, and those types of things. So Nada, with that pharmacology in mind, and I think it starts to become clear that there probably is some relationship with insulin use as well. What was the objective of your study? Well, as Jamie mentioned, you know, we are using these agents a lot more in practice. Um, there's a lot of excellent data regarding the benefits of using both the GLP-1 agonists and the SGLT2 inhibitors. But for us, we really noticed that there was a little bit of a gap in the literature on like what the real world experiences are when you're adding either a GLP-1 agonist or an SGLT-2 specifically for our patients who are on insulin. And so that was really 
The primary objective of our study was to look at that impact of adding either of those agents and how we would have to adjust the insulin requirements. So the clinical conundrum, so to speak, was that in your own practices, you you recognized that there there wasn't sufficient data completely inform the the use the the concomitant use of these agents along with insulin and an understanding of what insulin requirements would be. Did I get that right? Yeah, and you know it's actually really interesting, Dan. In the literature, there's anywhere from a variation, especially with the GLP one agonists, of like anywhere from 20% up to 50% of a decrease that's suggested in patients who are also on insulin. With the SGLT2 inhibitors, there's actually not even as much data there. The American Diabetes Association guidelines just sort of say, you know, decrease the insulin dose when starting one of these agents. And so we were actually noticing in our practice, we were getting a lot of questions from providers. So we have a practice of ambulatory care pharmacists working in primary care clinics. And so we were starting a lot of these agents. And so the providers were trying to use more of them. And the question continued to come up, okay, if I add this agent on, what do I do with the insulin? Because I don't want this patient's blood sugar to drop and they experience hypoglycemia. And so that's really what sort of prompted this study. And as we looked more into the literature, we realized that hopefully this could be beneficial to add some of those real world experiences in our clinics. Got it. So you used a a retrospective cohort design for the study. Uh, What were the two cohorts that you were comparing? We looked at both GLP-1 agonists and SGLT-2 inhibitors separately. So those were sort of each cohort. We had about 250 patients that were initially screened, and the majority of those patients were assigned to the GLP-1 agonist group, which matches what we're actually doing in clinical practice because we actually are prescribing the GLP-1 agonists a little bit more frequently than the SGLT-2 inhibitors. With that background, to really frame things, why don't you walk us through not of the methods that the team used to, to address the research question? Sure, yeah. So as I mentioned, we looked at patients who had a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, and they were patients who were established care with a pharmacist. So it was a multi-center retrospective study. We have about eight pharmacists at the time in the studies. And so we looked at those patients who had at least one visit, so they had established care with that pharmacist. And then we, after screening the patients, we actually ended up doing like a manual chart collection. And so we figured this would probably be the most feasible way to do it with this study. And the reason why is when we're making dose adjustments with insulin, sometimes these adjustments are changing every week or every couple of weeks. And so we realized that, you know, the medication list might not accurately reflect all these changes that are happening in the chart. And so that's why we actually decided to go the route. It was a little bit more work and labor intensive, but we decided that would be best to get some accurate results for our study. So from there, we looked at those two groups. And then, as I mentioned, the literature is not very specific in terms of like the insulin dose adjustments. And a lot of it really talks about empiric dose adjustments. So what we did was we actually took that data and decided to look at different time intervals. And so we did at two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. And then we also looked at three months and six months to really say that, you know, even if we're empirically adjusting, maybe at the three month mark, something else needs to happen. And so we felt like this would be really beneficial to help guide providers into knowing how to adjust insulin when they are starting these agents. So Jamie, what did you find? 
Yeah, so we we looked at a couple different things, but primarily we were looking at like that insulin adjustment, like Nadam was mentioning. So uh, we started out around 72, 73 units for both groups. And then uh, when we compared each of the time points, like the two, four, six weeks and three months, six months, like Nada mentioned, um, compared to the baseline, with the GLP-1 agonist, we found there was a significant difference between the baseline and each time period. But when we looked at the SGLT-2 inhibitors, there wasn't a significant change from the baseline. And then at the six-month mark, it was around 24% reduction in the insulin dose for GLP-1 agonists. And then even though SGLT-2 inhibitors did start to decrease in the beginning, at the six-month point, it increased slightly, just a couple units for each patient. So along with this, we found that uh, we were looking at A1C less than eight in both groups. There were some patients at baseline that did have an A1C less than eight. So it was around like 10%. But by the six month mark, this was a significant increase in how many patients actually did end up with an A1C. Uh, less than eight. And it was more so in the GLP-1 agonist group than the SGLT-2 group, but both were more than 60% in each group. So it was really great to see how significant we could see that decrease in A1C and to reach that goal of A1C less than eight. And then we also looked into patients who we could discontinue sulfonylureas and bolus insulin as well, because if we can, we can try to decrease other agents when we're adding on these GLP-1 agonists and SGLT-2 inhibitors. And we found that there was a good portion of patients we were able to do that with, with both agents. And then finally, we also looked at adverse effects and we anticipated kind of seeing that hypoglycemia was the most common which goes to show so maybe there might need to be even more insulin reduction that is necessary as well because hypoglycemia still was evident within the data. Okay, so you're saying that you still saw hypoglycemia despite reductions in insulin doses? Yeah, so we did have about 40% of patients in the GLP-1 agonist group, a little bit less occurred in the SGLT-2 inhibitor group, but there was still that possibility. And we did define hypoglycemia as less than 70 for their blood glucose levels. And so that shows that there still might need to be additional reduction in insulin compared to also what we had found too. Nana, what would you add in terms of the findings? Amy did a really good job summarizing the results of our study. Um, A few more things to add and really to highlight is she mentioned that we had a majority of patients who were able to achieve an A1C less than 8%. But in our study, we actually had a higher baseline total insulin dose and higher A1C value to start. And so we also found that that was actually predictive of discontinuing bolus insulin in some patients. Again, to really try to avoid that risk of hypoglycemia And then the other significant finding I wanted to mention is that because our patients were working pretty closely with the pharmacist, we actually found that maybe some of these differences could have been related to that, the fact that they had closer follow-up with the pharmacist. About 40% of patients in each group were able to achieve the max doses of both the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 agonists. And then even in our patients, though, that we actually 
were lost to pharmacist follow-up per se. So maybe they had that initial visit and then, you know, for some reason or another, didn't attend any follow-up visits. For the ones who still maintained contact and follow-up with the providers, we did also include those patients in our analysis as well. So just something to keep in mind, you know, when interpreting these results. So the two groups were different though in size. Can you talk about that a bit? And I think there was, that you made some reference to that actually in the opening, just in terms of the use of the two agents overall, but how did that affect your, your approach to the, to the analysis? Yeah. So the groups did have a a big difference in the size. So the GLP-1 agonist had about 120 patients, whereas the SGLT-2 inhibitors had about 30. And as Minata mentioned, we do often have a lot more GLP-1 agonist use in practice. So this is why we saw the group's size difference this way. Even though they did different size, though, we weren't really comparing the two groups. It was more so descriptive study just to understand exactly how the percentage of insulin dose decrease occurred between the groups. And since we weren't really powered also to detect a difference between the two groups, it also allowed us to not really have to involve that in the analysis as well. So we could run the statistical test differently as well. So it was separate tests for each group. We didn't really also make any direct comparisons between the two groups also because they weren't matched for that. And also it was retrospective as well. So um, those are all reasons kind of we use to not really compare the two, but that does provide potential in the future to use as comparison potentially. Got it. Okay. So Nada, there were some differences in your findings compared to previous published, previously published evidence. What were those differences and how do you explain those? The main difference that we wanted to highlight is that, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of the previous studies really just look at those empiric dose adjustments. And so for our study, that's why we felt that it would be helpful to really measure that change in insulin at those different time points that I previously mentioned. And we really found that, you know, we didn't really have an empiric, a consistent like empiric dose adjustment in terms of what we were seeing with both the GLP-1 agonists and the SGLT-2 inhibitors. But we did end up finding this significant change in the A1C value. And so one of, I think that's a big strength of our study is that a lot of our patients did have that higher A1C concentration at baseline. And so I think this really helps with that external validity of applying these results to other practices that may be seeing patients who have A1C values above 9 or 10. A lot of the patients in our studies actually had a significant A1C above 10, which is very different than what we see in the literature. And I think that helps to guide some of those insulin adjustments because, you know, we're not taking our standard patient who's pretty well controlled, maybe just borderline needs a little bit of a boost. And so, in that patient, they may require a little bit more insulin dose adjustments if their sugars are better controlled versus patients who have a much higher A1C and could maybe tolerate the addition of this agent without having to adjust the insulin a little bit more. So those were really the pertinent findings and the differences compared to some of the previous data that we had seen. And we hope that, you know, the results of our study really helped to guide, like I mentioned, you know, other practices in terms of making these adjustments to ultimately, you know, reduce that risk of hypoglycemia. Although we did still see pretty significant hypoglycemia in our study, we're hoping that these results really help 
to you know guide those practice changes to avoid that in the future. Nada, that's a good lead into a follow-up question that I have. You mentioned early on real-world evidence, and now you've started to talk about practice changes. Based on what you have observed through this study, have there been practice changes implemented at Henry Ford as a result of the work that's been done here? We've actually shared the results of the study with our clinicians and the providers at all of our sites. Um, And we're actually in the process of developing some type of workflow to really help providers know that, you know, if a patient's A1C is between maybe eight to nine, or if the A1C is above 10 and you're adding on one of these agents, what's the next step in terms of what you do with the insulin? A little bit of a challenge we've had was trying to simplify these results. And so, you know, providers may not be seeing the patient every two weeks or every four weeks, like we looked at in our study. And so we're trying to really take these results and interpret them in a more simplified manner to help guide clinicians in terms of when they're making these decisions. But I think it's also really, you know, helped our own group of pharmacists adjust our practices in terms of how we're making those changes and be a little bit more well-informed. And I know even in my own practice, you know, it's been interesting when I've added agents on for patients, they're always like, wait, you're going to give that to me in addition to what I'm already taking? And it's really helpful to be able to say, you know, we've used this in hundreds of patients before and have found that with your A1C where it's at and with us adding on this medication, you should have a pretty low risk of having a low blood sugar episode. And I think it gives patients some reassurance that, you know, they're not the first person to be started on this in combination with insulin. And so that's sort of where we're going in terms of the data that we found from our study. Jamie, what did you identify as limitations of the work? So we had a couple of limitations. One of them was that we did have a small sample size. It was more so because we wanted to have like a brief snapshot of what those real world insulin changes were within a couple of years in the clinic. But the agents had been somewhat relatively new as well, um, which prevented us from having a significant amount of sample size because of that. And we also had patients that were managed by a clinical pharmacists, like Nada mentioned, um, instead of having all patients that were included and had been started on a GLP-1 agonist or SGLT-2 inhibitor, more so because we were able to f- have close follow-up with them and we can evaluate them more at those time periods when patients are started by a physician on one of these agents, they might not see them for a month or even a couple months. But um, with the pharmacist follow-up, there would be potentially closer follow-up because of that and give us that data for those time periods that we had wanted to. And then there also could have been external factors at each time point, like if someone's sulfonylurea was discontinued or their bolus insulin was discontinued in between one of those follow-ups that could have also affected some of those, like the insulin change numbers as well, rather than if it was solely only based on if they were only on this agent plus insulin, those external medications can also have affected it. Um, And then lastly, we did have certain agents that were approved or like certain doses that were approved after this study had occurred, like the time period was until 2019, but um, Trulicity three milligrams and four and a half milligrams weren't available yet. So those, the data for that wouldn't have been in there. So potentially having these additional options compared to when this study's time was set for would allow for even more significant results and even more significant decreases in insulin as well. 
So with all of that in mind, some of the limitations that you've addressed and also the further implementation at Henry Ford. Nada, where do you go from here in terms of additional study? Do you do you plan on conducting additional research around the, the use of these agents and in this population of patients with diabetes? Yeah, so that's definitely something that we're considering, um, especially given, you know, like I said, the results in our studies and trying to help simplify some of these results for our providers and clinicians. I think something else that we should consider doing in the future is looking at those differences in insulin dose adjustment and potentially like stratifying them further based on that baseline A1C, because I think that was a pretty significant finding in our study that there was this wide variation in A1C values. And so maybe that could help, you know, as I mentioned with those workflows and helping to guide further practice. I think another thing that we haven't really looked at that I think is going to be more relevant as we continue to use these agents. I mean, the data regarding GLP-1 agonists and SGLT-2 inhibitors is just remarkable. I feel like Every week, there's a new study coming out showing the benefits of these agents. And so I think we need to consider looking at patients who are started on a combination of both of these agents, or maybe patients who are using a GLP-1 agonist and we want to add an SGLT-2 inhibitor and they're already on insulin. So I think using the combination of both of those agents is another direction that we might look at in the future as well. Jamie, what would you add to that? I think Nada mentioned really well about some really good directions and also not just from with Henry Ford, I think a lot of other practices could also start developing these policies and the provider workflows, making sure that they're educating even like the medical residents, those are new doctors who are coming in on these types of adjustments so that it can help with overall just preventing the hypoglycemia and helping patients really achieve a lowest amount of insulin that they need to be on as well. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Nada Farhat and Dr. Jamie George for joining us today to discuss their article, Evaluation of Insulin Requirements with Initiation of Glucagon-Like Peptide 1 Agonists and Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter 2 Inhibitors, a retrospective cohort trial, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, family, friends, and via your social media of choice. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.